Okay, we continue. In the chronological life of Jesus, we are in John, the Gospel according to John, verse chapter 5, verse 30. John 5, verse 30. Jesus said, I, now let, let, me, let me remind you of the context here. This was, if we go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So, the Jews wanted to kill him, for two reasons. One, because he was breaking the Sabbath, and they had all these regulations around the Sabbath. He didn't break any regulations of the 613 commandments of Moses. He broke their Mishnaic Pharisaic laws. And then the other thing it was, he was making himself out to be equal with God. For these reasons, he want, they wanted to kill him. And that's where he goes into this discourse, which we started on last time. Now we'll pick it up at verse 30. Last time we talked about the resurrections. Now in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So you, you see, Jesus said, I'm not seeking my own will, I'm just doing what I see my Father doing. As I see, I judge. What I do what I see my Father do. Often there will be this feeling... That, uh, you know, I, I, I like this independence I have. I want to be my own person. Well, that's great within a certain context. That's wonderful. But as believers, as believers, we want to remember that so much we are to follow the image of Jesus Christ. We are to follow the image of Jesus Christ and also follow the image of the great ones that have gone before us. So Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ to look at their images, to see what they did and to follow their ways. That is where there will be real freedom. <clears throat> because if we just try to exercise freedom to do whatever we want to do, we will come greatly confined. There is real freedom in following what God has prescribed for us to do. And in that, there is freedom and there is happiness. There is joy within that context. And we looked at that a little bit last time. Let's pick it up in verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony uh, which he gives about me is true. So Jesus is about to give witnesses to his testimony that indeed he is the Messiah. He is God come in the flesh. He is about to do this. And remember, in Israel... You, you, you gave two or three witnesses. It said in the Old Testament law, by two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. So two witnesses were good. Three witnesses were even better. Three witnesses were, were, were the best, but even two witnesses were sufficient. Jesus is about to give four witnesses. And the reason he gives four is he gives one in particular, John the Baptist, which he himself doesn't regard that highly in the sense that it is just the witness of man. And Jesus is saying, I have witness which is above the witness of man. So he gives three witnesses that are above the witness of just, of just men. But the fourth one, he says, I'll throw in John the Baptist because through this, maybe, maybe through this, then you'll be saved. I care about you that much. So here's the witnesses that he starts to talk about. In verse 33, you have sent to John, and he testified to the truth. 
But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So, he says, here is the first witness. The first witness to the testimony that I, I am I'm come the Messiah. He says, it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He says in verse 33, you've sent to John the Baptist, and he testified to the truth. So, he makes reference to a time where they even sent for John the Baptist. And it says, he testified the truth. But Jesus says of John the Baptist, he says this in verse 34. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, there's another verse in Scripture that Jesus said he knew what was in all men. Jesus was not using humans to bring forth his testimony in this period where he's bearing witness. He says, here are the witnesses to my Messiahship. But I am saying this, he says... He says that uh, I say these things to you so that you may be saved. He says, okay, I'll give you the testimony of John for maybe, maybe that will change your hearts because my heart is for you, I want you saved. So imagine the context here. Here is a group of people that it just said of them that they wanted to kill Jesus, wanted to kill him. Nobody that I know has ever wanted to kill me. Now there's people that have been upset with me before, but But no one has ever wanted to kill me that I know of. If somebody had wanted to kill me, I think I'd be pretty concerned. You know, you worry about going outside and and, and what's going to happen. You want to keep the shades closed and you, you don't know what's happening. But he says, this is what he says to people who want to kill him. He says, I'm giving you this witness because I really want you to be saved. Well, what did John the Baptist do? John the Baptist was... The one who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a clear bearing witness that Jesus was the Messiah, the one who will take away sin. He says, There, I'll start with John. But now I've got three other witnesses that are greater than John. Verse 36, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which my Father has given me to accomplish... The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So by this point, Jesus has had many sessions. Remember, for one year his ministry has been going on. Many periods where he has healed multitudes of people. And the Pharisees have been there. They have seen this. This is now documented among them. And he says, the works themselves testify of me. And not only just those works, but the Messianic miracle that you yourselves have taught. You yourselves, and you can look back in Jewish writings today, they still teach that when Messiah comes, he will be able to heal a Jewish leper. Jesus healed a Jewish leper, something that had never been done in Israel prior to the law being complete. His works testify of him that he is the Messiah. The works themselves bear witness. Now, look in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. So he says in verse 7, the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. And then he says, but you guys here, you didn't see his, his form, you haven't heard his voice. But here's what happened. And if you, if you look back in, uh, um, in, in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, verse, verse uh, 
3.16 it says, Matthew 3.16, And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the, the, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So a voice came from heaven. This is the voice of God comes from heaven. And many people there heard it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this is the form that God took. Came down in the form of a dove. Wasn't a dove, but in the form of a dove, dove came upon him. The same thing is documented in Mark. Mark's uh, Gospel chapter 1 verse, verse uh, uh, 10. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and a spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And, and then also in Luke, it, Luke chapter 3 talks about the same sort of thing, that this voice came from heaven. So there was a voice, he says, from heaven. That bore witness of me. My father's voice bears witness of me. You want a testimony? The voice came from heaven, bore witness of me. So, so he says, the witness of John, I'll give it to you, but that's not even the three that I'm including. The first one that I'll include are my works bear witness of me. The second one is that my father bears witness of me. This voice came from heaven. He says, but you didn't hear his voice, and you haven't seen his form, because you walk in unbelief. And now in verse 39, he has the witness of the Scriptures. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in my own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the, Holy one, from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But, you, but if you do not believe the writings, how will you believe my words? This is a very strong accusation. There are Orthodox Jews today that love the Scriptures. I mean really love the Scriptures. And particularly among the Scriptures, they favor the writings of Moses. So you have the first five books of our Old Testament. The first five books will be read every Sabbath day in the synagogues. And they cover the entire five books of Moses reading in the synagogues every year. Wherever you go in the world to any synagogue, they will be reading that same passage from the, the first five books. Some passage. Then they will read from other books that complement that passage. So they'll read something, say, from the book of Psalms or from the, the prophet Isaiah that complement that passage, that stand with that passage in the writing of Moses. But they don't cover all the other writings of the Old Testament. In, in, in the synagogues. What they always cover are the writings of Moses. Those sit and those have preeminence among the writings to the Jew. And there are particular portions that they don't read in the synagogue, ever. And that is, for example, the end of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53. The ones that you and I here hold so dear, that it's a very precise description 
of what the Lord is going to be like when He comes. Very precise description. How He's going to die. The things that, that He's going to bear. I sat in an in a Orthodox Jew's home just this past summer. And I said that the Scriptures speak about Jesus because He had the audacity to say there has never been any prophecy in the Scriptures about Jesus. And so I went to the book of Isaiah, and I sat there, and I started at the end of Isaiah 52, and he sat there with his Hebrew Bible, and I with my English, and I read in my English Bible, and I told him where to start looking. And I read all of the end of Isaiah 52 and all of Isaiah 53, and the guy was speechless. He was speechless, because they don't read this passage. And you can't read that book. And I looked at him, and I said, don't you see from this passage how some, how some might take this to be a prophecy of Jesus. And he just stared at me. I mean, what can you say when you've read a passage like that? Jesus is saying, the Scriptures bear witness of me. The Scriptures bear witness of me. Moses wrote of me. Look in Deuteronomy 18. Moses wrote things that really looked like a prophecy about Jesus. These things happened... And Jesus said, said uh, uh, in verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me, and you are unwilling to come to Me so that you may have life. So in other words, they believed that through the Scriptures, remember what the Pharisees believed, they believed that through the Scriptures, the study of the Scriptures, you get eternal life. The Sadducees that control, who controlled the, the, the uh, temple system, the Sadducees believed that it came through the offerings. You do these offerings, you're going to have eternal life. The Pharisees didn't, didn't belittle the, the, uh, the offerings, but they said you have to study the Scriptures. And that's why you go to Israel today. You see among the Orthodox Jews, which, which have descended from this Pharisaic system, that this deep respect for the Word of God, they're sitting there and studying this day in and day out. They have these yeshivas, these schools, where they just spend their lives studying the Scriptures. Jesus said, you think that in them you have eternal life. But you don't realize that it comes from me. The life comes from me. In verse 40, you are unwilling to come to me so that you might really have life. Remember, two-thirds of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees. One-third was the Pharisees. So that at that time, the Pharisees were still a minority. But they had, had a lot of power. And then he says, Verse 41, I do not receive glory from men. In other words, I'm not taking the testimony of men. I'm not even including the testimony of John here. This is not the testimony of men. This is the testimony of Scripture. He says in verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not, you did, you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And this has happened. There are people that have risen up who have come in their own name. Even in, in your lifetime, there are people who have risen up. For example, Rabbi Schneerson. There's a whole sect among Orthodox Jews called the Lubavitchers. And there's, in fact, a Lubavitcher synagogue right across the street from, from Rice University. And I've been there. And, and uh, uh, they believed that a man named Rabbi Schneerson, who lived in Brooklyn, New York, was the Messiah. And uh, uh, they tried to get him to move back to Israel. They built for him a house in Israel, it's an exact copy of his house in Brooklyn. And, uh, um, and then when the, fa- the man finally died, uh, they were waiting for him to rise up on the third day, and he never did. But there's still people that are holding this hope in this Rabbi Schneerson. And, and, uh, and there have been others that have come. 
others that came even in their, in their generation, in, in the generation of, of in, in the first century, shortly after Jesus, who were coming in their own name as Messiah. Then he says, he says um, uh, verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Remember this extreme respect for Moses that they had. He says, Moses is going to be the one accusing you, because Moses wrote about me. But look at this thing that, that he says. He says um, uh, in verse 42, But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. This is how Jesus knows people. He knows them by the bearing of the love of God in themselves. Remember what he told his disciples. People will know you by your love one for another. He says, I know you. You don't have the love of God in yourself. It is very clear to me that you don't know God, that you don't bear life. Because you don't have the love of God in yourselves. If you spend time in the Scriptures and spend time before God, you will begin to build a relationship with God, and more love in your heart will come. More compassion in your heart will come. They believed Moses, not as Moses, they believed the writings of, Mo, as, of Moses, not as Moses wrote about, but as how it had been reinterpreted by Pharisaic and Mishnaic law. They did not believe the Scriptures for what it is. And you will find very often among Orthodox Jews that they themselves don't read the Scriptures very much. They read the Mishnah. They read all that oral law. I've come, I've had conversations with Orthodox Jews, and time and time again, this is what happens. In our conversations, I go back to the Scriptures, and I quote the Scriptures over and over and over again. And several times this has happened, they start to weep as I start to talk with them. They start to weep when they hear the Scriptures spoken of. And it moves them to go back and to read the Scriptures. One Orthodox Jew said, he said to me, he said to me, you know, after speaking with you, I went back to my synagogue and I told my synagogue that I met this Messianic Jew who's quoting the Scriptures so much to me that I've decided to go back and read the Constitution, the Scriptures. Not the Mishnaic Law, not the Mishnah, but read what the Scriptures said. This is what the Scriptures said, what Paul said would happen. He said, you will cause the Jews to be moved to jealousy as you love God. Your love for God will cause them to be moved to jealousy. Uh, one, one Orthodox woman said to me, you know, you just read the Scriptures because you love it. And you have the ability to just read it because you love it. She says, I don't have any time to read the Scriptures. She says, I have to light this candle, say this prayer, do this, don't eat that, don't touch this. She says, I have no time to read the Scriptures anymore. So she was bemoaning the fact that, that, that this was happening to her. Jesus said, you don't have the love of God in yourselves. I'll tell you how you can start to pull back from the love of God. You stop spending time with God on a regular basis, and the love for God and compassion for others would start to be removed from you, because you'll become more like yourself. You spend more time in the Scriptures reading this Word and asking God to speak to you and work in your heart, you will get a greater love for God and your attitude starts to change. What changes a person? You know, I've heard the students say, well, you know, we don't need that religion. What we need is education. Education will do it. I say, you know, I can show you some really wicked people that have more education, a lot more than you have. So obviously, the education didn't make them nice people. 
education doesn't necessarily do it. You take this word and you start to make it a part of your life and you get the love of God to start moving in your heart. And we're going to see in these coming portions, these passages, where Jesus would say, I wish you would just have compassion on these people. They were very tight and all buttoned up and all, all, all ready to go when it came to all their religious constructions around them. But there was no love of God. This whole thing, what we do, should move us more toward the love of God. And this is what happens when you spend time with God. If you go to seminary, some of you may want to go to seminary. If you go to seminary, you will see people that go through Christian schools and seminaries that think that, okay, if I just get these courses, I am all set. And there's no love of God in them. Because you can study these from an academic standpoint which is what those folks were doing. But Jesus said, I can see you don't have the love of God in you. You have to come before God and say, Father, work in my heart, work in my life, change my life through this. It is not a matter of doing this, don't touch that, don't do this. It is a relationship. Jesus said, I can see you don't have the love of God in you. It's Moses who's going to accuse you. Moses is going to be standing there and accusing you because he wrote of me. And in verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, so now let's, let's move on. The next, the, the next part in, in the life of, of uh, in the chronological life of Jesus, we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 12, reading from verse 1. Matthew chapter 12, reading from verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what, what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, so any Jew could be walking through the fields. Anybody could be walking through the fields. It could be uh, fruit orchards. It could be grain fields. And if you just happen to be going through, you were allowed to pick and eat the food as you went. You couldn't stop there and camp out and set up a tent. That was not allowed. But in Israel, and this is written about in the Old Testament, that you, you know farmers weren't allowed to come out and shoot somebody with a shotgun if they were walking through their fields and you know pick an orange off a tree or something. No, you had to allow people to walk through and eat of your fields. God said, I gave you the land, let the stranger pass through and let them take. They couldn't store up in a bag, but they could take as they ate. This was allowed in Israel. So they were walking through a grain field. They started to pick these heads of grain. And so you rub it and you, you, you expose the, 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 the edible part and you blow away the chaff and, and you just eat it. And this is what they were doing. But remember around these 1,500 new laws that they had for the Sabbath day, one of the laws was that you couldn't do this. And Jesus say, is saying you can do it. This is your Mishnaic law. They're not disobeying. And so what he does is now Jesus really cleverly... Remember, Jesus is not an educated man in the sense of being a Pharisee. But what he does is he takes a portion of Scripture, of written Scripture, and he puts it directly opposed to their own Mishnaic law, their oral law, which they said has equal validity to the written law. And he shows them where it's, it, it's in complete contest. And here it is. This is what Jesus does. So in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 12, he says, Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? 
he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So, he takes an incident, and you can go back in the Old Testament and read this. David was actually fleeing from King Saul. And, he had, and so he was fleeing from King Saul. When he was fleeing, he went in, into the, the, uh, the tabernacle, and he said to one of the priests, he says, you have any food here? I'm hungry. And, and uh, uh, he actually even lied to the priest. He says, I'm on the king's business. He didn't, he didn't uh, 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 even tell the truth. And the, king's, and the priest said, well, I've only got, got uh, um, bread here, which is really for the priest. Now, there was no law against the priest giving this bread to a common man. Remember, David was from the tribe of Judah. He was not from uh, the tri- uh, tribe of Levi. So he was not part of the priesthood. But there was no commandment written in Scripture where a pr- priest couldn't give this food to somebody outside of uh, being a Levite. He gave it to him. And he gave it to him with the understanding that this was for David and it was for the men that were with him. The men that were traveling with him. Because David said he had men with him out in the fields. David was lying like crazy at this point. And, and, uh, but nonetheless, he gave him this bread. And Jesus cites this very incident. Because they had a new law, a man-made, a human-made law, that said that bread for the priest can only be eaten by the priests. That showbread could only be eaten by the priest. So what he did is he said, here, here, here you have the written word that is juxtaposed to your oral law. Now what are you going to do? David did this. So you're going to say, now what are you going to say about this? David ate, and nothing happened to him. He was fine. Then he says in verse 5, or Have you not read in the law that the Sab- on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? And are blameless. So, what he, again, he says, you know, you say nobody should do anything on the Sabbath. What about the priests? The priests are always working on the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath is a more busy day for them than any other day. It's like pastors. I mean, Sunday is most people's day off, but pastors work harder on Sundays than they do any other day. In fact, that's the only day they work. Right? They <laughs> work on Sundays. So, um, so he's saying that, that, that you have all these laws around the Sabbath. And now, a song that is still sung today. You walk into a synagogue, you will hear this song sung on the Sabbath. And this song, translated, says that, that uh, um, why was Israel made? Israel was made for the Sabbath. Why was Israel made? Israel was made for the Sabbath. Now, Jesus just comes just head on against this feeling, this attitude. He says, yet I say to you that in this place, one greater than the temple uh, is, is here. And so Jesus, in, in, in one of the other Gospels, we'll see it. He says that, that uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. So you see, he takes this whole song and he turns it on his head. He says, no, Israel was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for Israel. And then, then in, in, still in this Matthew portion, he says, one greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he says to them, he says, 
But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So again, he quotes a portion from the Old Testament where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mercy supersedes sacrifice. Why are you condemning these poor disciples of mine? He says, if you had understood what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is the exact portion that he quoted not too long ago to them, telling them to go and learn this. So if you look back, if you look back in, uh, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, after Jesus had, had uh, ministered to the sinners, remember in, in Matthew's house, in, in Levi's house, he had gone in and he sat with, with publicans and sinners. And, and uh, in verse 12, Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, it says, When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So he told them back then, go and learn what this means. And now he says to them, he doesn't say go and learn it. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He said, I told you before to learn this. And you still haven't learned it. He told them before, go and learn what this means. And now he says to them, if you knew what this means. In other words, I had given you this assignment to go and learn what this means. If you had learned what this means, you would not have condemned these people. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You want to see something that that, that begins to show in your heart that God is working in your life? Your mercy will increase. Your mercy will increase. And as soon as you start neglecting time with God and pulling back a little bit, I mean, I see it in my own life. Just start becoming angry and upset about every little thing. Any little thing. You know, you just get upset about every little thing. You start pulling back from God. And then you spend time with God. And the things of the world don't seem to bother you as much. You will have a lot more mercy. This is what God does in the life of a person. You go and learn what this means. You go and learn what this means. You spend time in the Scriptures and start to do it. It will change your life. It can change a marriage. It can change a relationship. You spend time with God and God will begin to work in your life and change your life. God will do something different. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. When you spend time with God, it will change your attitude. When I talk with unbelievers, sometimes it, you know, they're having marital trouble. It's so hard for me to really deal with this. I, had, I, I sat with this young lady in my office and she was going to divorce her husband. And, I, and, and uh, you know, I tried to talk about forgiveness. And she said, well... There are some things, I just can't forgive this. I just can't forgive. He did this and this. I just can't forgive. When a person doesn't know God and doesn't understand forgiveness, it is so hard to know how to engage with them in a way that's going to retain some, some, some wholeness in life. But as believers, we have this word. So if a believer were to say this to me, and I've heard believers tell me the same thing, I can't forgive, I go right back to Scripture and say, you have been commanded forgive. It is not an option anymore. As believers, we are commanded to forgive. As God has forgiven us, we are so to forgive others. It is a commandment upon us. And it will bring richness in your life. When you show mercy, when you do act of good, acts of good, this 
brings happiness. Remember, the happiest people that I know are givers. People who give of themselves. People who are always giving. Why should this be? Why should a person who's always giving out of their resources and their time be happiest? They don't have much time for themselves. They're the ones that are happiest. The ones that are always for me and this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. You would think that they'd be really happy because they got everything of theirs. But they're never happy. Why is this? Because of God. God has demonstrated to us giving, mercy, desiring to be kind, desiring to be gentle. This is what brings happiness to our own lives. You want to have a good relationship? You want to have a good marriage? You want to have a good life? Be a giver. Be one that displays mercy. Be one that displays kindness. It was just, uh, in, in, uh, unfortunately, it was, it was fairly harrowing for me. I was in, on jury trial all this week. And, and so all week I, was, I was, had to, to uh, serve on this jury. And it was even, you know, the, the, the judge said that, you know, we'd, we'd certainly be out by Friday afternoon and we weren't. And, it, and then finally it, it went on right on into the evening. And so we're sitting in this room, and so, we, so 12 of us have to come to agreement on this case. And it was a family civil case where, where a husband and wife, after 40 years of marriage, were getting divorced. And they were trying to split the assets. How do you split the assets? Well, the, the wife, you, you know, in the last four months has drawn down all the accounts. You know, all the money just disappeared that she took out of the bank. And she was under court order not to do that. They could only take the normal living expenses. And she denied everything. Well, I had a lot of expenses to pay. Huge amounts of money. Well, what was this check for? I don't remember. What was this $22,000 check for? I don't remember. And, and, you know, and, and so all this is going on, and, and we're sitting in there, and, and uh, you know, I'm jury foreman, so it means I have to coordinate 11 other people, and we have to come to agreement on a lot of different categories, not just guilt, guilty or not guilty, but how much is this worth? How much is this business worth? How many? So there were accountants that had shown us all sorts of numbers and things. And, and uh, uh, interestingly, everyone on the jury was a man, except only one woman. The one woman was in her 20s and it had never been married. And she was like, well, that guy said to her such and such. And I said to her, um, I've said the same thing to my wife. I said, you know, a lot of things happen in marriage. And, you know, all the guys are going, how many of you gentlemen here have never said like things to your wife? And they go, buddy, we've been there. We know it. And, and uh, uh, there's this, this feeling when you've not been through this to think that, oh, this is so unusual. And trying to get consensus with all these people. And I'm talking about mercy and kindness, but fairness in all of this and trying to pull all these things together. It is so much easier working with people, and there, were, there was one guy there, he, he was obviously a believer. In fact, I had talked with him a little bit before, and you could see he kept on going back to the Bible. He says, well, the Bible says, such a reasonable guy, such a kind guy. And because he had the context of the Scriptures, and you could just see it in the different ways that people were speaking. Did they have the context of the Word of God? Was there something working in their lives? And you could just pick out the believers among them. So you can understand these things. And... I'm telling you, your life will be so much better, so much better, if you would just take the Word of God and say, God, do something in my life. Make me different. Remember, Jesus' cry to them was, you guys have to learn mercy. You have to learn mercy. Leave these poor people alone. They're just eating. 
You have to learn mercy. And I'm telling you, you can't deeply learn this without God. Jesus said, you don't have the love of God in yourselves. That's how I know that you're not of God. You spend time with God, you'll get the more love of God within, within yourself. As you start to meet somebody that you think that you might marry, remember, you have to spend time together in prayer. If you can't pray with this individual, they are not the right individual for you. If all the person can do, you say, you know, I'll ask young people, is that person a Christian? Oh yeah, they're a Christian. I said, well, you pray with them? Oh yeah, yeah. And you listen to the person pray, and all they can say is, uh, um, God, thank you for this food. Amen. You know, that's it. If that's the extent of their prayer life, that's not the person you want. You want somebody that can go deeper than that. You know, now they don't have to be Billy Graham, but you want somebody that can go deeper than that. This is the love of God. Do they love God? Does it affect their decisions? This is how you will know them. Jesus said, I know that you're not of God because you have not the love of God in yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these young people. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would work in their lives a love for you that would come out of relationship. Not out of just being born into a Christian family, but out of a relationship with you. Father, I pray that they would learn mercy. They would learn kindness. They would learn acts of kindness, even as Jesus spoke about. Father, I pray that you would work in their lives that the love of God would shine through. Father, I pray that they would learn to be givers, gracious people, learning to give so that they may have happy lives. Father, the grace of God be upon them, I pray, and your kindness reign in the name of Jesus. Amen.